This is week three, the final week of our rebroadcast series entitled Producers Picks. This week, we're going to be listening to season one, episode 26, entitled Motivation Matters, part two, Escalators. A good story takes us on a journey. It reminds us of where we've been and shows us where we could go. A good story makes us feel and inspires us to act. Welcome to the Good Story Podcast, where everyday stories that make you laugh, cry, or feel slightly uncomfortable will leave you inspired as Kirsten King tells true stories and teaches truth. Today, we conclude our two-part series entitled Motivation Matters. We're going to look at the fact that it's possible to do the exact same thing and have it be rightly motivated in one instance and wrongly motivated in the next. And we're going to notice that it's actually our motivation that matters. Do you drive? Have you ever driven the speed limit just because it was posted there and you wanted to obey the law? Or have you ever driven the speed limit just because you were driving behind a cop? Do you buy cookies from Girl Scouts? Have you ever bought them because you wanted to help out a niece or a neighbor or a stranger? Or have you ever bought them because you wanted to binge on Thin Mints and Tagalongs until you were sick? Do you ever have people over for dinner? Have you done so because you wanted to get to know them better and share a meal? Or have you invited them over and then complained while you prepared their food and cleaned your house and you ended up wishing you never asked them over? Sometimes we're motivated out of goodness, goodness that indwells us as we live out our lives in the image of God. Other times, our actions are motivated by the fear of consequence or greed and gluttony or pride. Proverbs 16.2 tells us that all a person's ways seem right to them, but the Lord weighs the motives. Isn't that the truth? I mean, it's scripture, so yes, it is. But man, can't we relate to that? (laughs) We could rationalize any of our behaviors. We can make whatever we're doing seem like the best choice possible, but it's only God who sees our heart. It is only Him who can see why it is we're doing what we're doing. Today, I'd like to ask you, why are you running up the down escalator? When I was in junior high, I used to love going to the mall with my friends. It seemed so independent. We seemed so old. I had one friend in particular I loved hanging out with. She was a year younger than I was and didn't go to my school, but we went to the same church and often found ourselves at either my house or her house on Sunday afternoons, and we'd also hang out with each other on weekends. One thing we discovered while we were shopping once at the mall, not discovered as in like we were the first person to ever do this before, I realized, but discovered in a way that we just now realized there was something we had never realized before. We discovered the thrill of running up the down escalators. It was challenging. It felt like a bit of a workout. It also felt a little anti-establishment for a 12 or 13-year-old. We didn't get many opportunities to exercise our free spirits, so as we were running as fast as we could up the down escalator, this seemed pretty fun. We got pretty good at it, too. Only once in a rare while did we time it poorly and ended up having to turn around and write it down because people were in our way. We never got caught by the mall cop, either. We always posted one of us at the top as a lookout. We were proud of that. One day... We had gone to the mall, done some shopping at Gap or the county seat or somewhere equally exciting. 
We had bought and downed our orange Julius already and had eaten our caramel corn, and we still had some time to kill before my friend's parents were going to pick us up. We were bored, and then we remembered, oh my gosh, we haven't run up the down escalators yet at all today. Duh. So we went to the center of the mall where the up and down were right next to each other, and we began to do it and challenge each other. Let's time ourselves and see who can do it the fastest. This was a great idea. So we did this for a little bit. And one of the times my friend looked at her watch. She started with the on your mark, get set, go. And I was off. I was running as fast as I could, head down and feet flying. I stopped only when I ran head first into a woman coming down. My head hit her stomach, my head jolted up, and my stomach hit the floor. I looked up into the eyes of my most feared Sunday school teacher. She was angry. I knew that look. <laughs> I'd seen her angry before, like when I talked when she was talking or when I laughed when she had told us to be quiet. My mom had seen her angry before too. She, my Sunday school teacher, had paid my mom a visit once in the middle of the day. My mom opened the door and greeted her. Oh, hi. This woman said, this is not a social call. May I come in? When I got home from school, my mom told me all about it and said that I had to stop laughing during closing prayers in Sunday school. Ah, I told her we'd been talking about atomic bombs in the middle of Sunday school. And then when my teacher started to pray, someone in another class had knocked over the big divider that divided us into classrooms, and it made this huge loud noise. And how could we not think about atomic bombs at that moment? And how could we not laugh at the irony of it all? My mom understood but thought I should still try not to laugh because it made this lady mad. Anyway, now here I was, staring into the eyes of my Sunday morning nemesis. I froze, and I rode the down escalator backwards. All the while, she was telling me I was up to no good, and my parents would likely hear about this, too. I looked for my friend once I got off. She had ridden up the up escalator and was peering behind some kiosk waiting for me. This was not the last time I did this. Years later, like 15 years later, I was at a different mall. I was shopping with my three little kids and was eight months pregnant with our fourth and last. We had been walking around. The, I don't know why I needed to add that, but I just did. Anyway, we had been walking around the mall, looking into windows for no real reason other than it was a great way to kill time on a winter day. When we'd shop, I'd push a stroller with my daughter who was just two in it. And then I'd have the twin boys who were three years old hold onto either side of it, one with their left hand and one with their right. This way, I could keep an eye on them and could alleviate any concerns I had about them running off. Somebody told me once, oh, it seems like it's so restrictive. But I was saying, hey, if we did not do this, we would go nowhere because I'd never be able to keep track of them. So anyway, this is what we did. We'd shopped for quite a while and had eaten a lunch I had packed. Yes, it was a little cheap there. We were walking around looking for great things, as we called them. Actually, it was just stuff like rubber bands, which they called rumber bands until they were pretty old. I just kept forgetting to correct them. Or we'd look for other great things like coins or paper clips or whatever piece of junk they'd find on the ground. We had one rule. It had to be something that would not have previously been in somebody's mouth like gum or a straw or something like that. And we would argue about that from time to time. When it was close to nap time, I knew I had to start heading home so I could make it in the house before someone nodded off prematurely in the car. I'm sure many of you can relate to that panicky feeling. You want to get home and have them take their solid nap. 
you start to see heavy eyelids and you're thinking, no, 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 no. If you're driving in the car, no, no, don't sleep now. I need you to sleep at home. Stay awake. Mommy needs a break. Stay awake. Mommy needs a break. But for now, back to the mall. It was getting close to nap time and I wanted to avoid that in the car later. So I was in a hurry. I saw the escalator in front of me and I thought, I know I'm not supposed to take a stroller down here, but the elevator is so far away and I just don't have time for that. So I positioned the stroller perpendicular to the escalator at the top of the stairs. I organized the boys in front of me. I had them hold hands and I told them, I'm going to say one, two, three, step. And they were going to get on, continue to hold hands and not let go. I told them I was going to be right behind them with the stroller. So to just wait and you could step off when I tell you to. We practiced. Okay, hold hands. Ready? One, two, three, step. Oh, this is great. If you can step this great when it's just the floor, I know you can step this great on the stairs too. Ready? Let's try it for real. They held hands. One, two, three, step. One of the boys took a big step. The other took a very small step. They started to spread apart as the stairs separated, but they knew they shouldn't let go of their hands, so they held tighter and tighter and started pulling at each other as they panicked. The one on the bottom pulled the one on the top down upon them, and they started to tumble down. I envisioned their tiny little fingers getting stuck under the moving stairs as they flattened at the bottom. I sprinted down the stairs, grabbed them both, one in each arm, stood them up, and then lifted them off at the bottom. I put their hands back together and told them, keep holding hands, as I realized I left the stroller and the baby at the top of the escalator. I looked for the up escalator so I could ride up quickly, and I couldn't see it. I looked past the boys holding hands, and across the mall, and past the coffee kiosk, and I realized it was way too far away. I could never leave the kids. So I turned around and began running as fast as an eight-month pregnant woman could run. It was quite a bit slower than my 13-year-old self, and I didn't have my friend timing me for extra impetus, but I also didn't run into my Sunday school teacher, so that was good. I eventually made it up there, grabbed the stroller, spun it around, and then carefully got on the escalator, rode it all the way back down while I kept saying very loudly, just a second, boys, I'm coming, wait right there, keep holding hands, I'll be there in a minute, <laughs> isn't this crazy? I was thinking, man, I should have heeded that warning about not taking strollers on an escalator. Then I realized, wait a second, that was not even my problem. As I rolled the stroller off the bottom step, I separated the hand-holding twins, placed one on either side, started walking, and then I heard the applause. People had stopped to watch my fiasco. They saw the boys tumble. They must have heard it and turned their round to look. They saw my rescue. They saw my return flight up to my daughter. They saw me riding down with the stroller like I wasn't supposed to be doing. And they saw the eventual relieved reunion at the base of the stairs. Even though they were applauding, I didn't feel affirmed. I knew this could have ended way worse, Ugh, but I was grateful it didn't. I was glad everyone was okay, and I was glad I had discovered and practiced the skill years earlier. Why do we do what we do? <laughs> we don't always know. Sometimes we do things for fun and challenge, and we want to feel free-spirited. Sometimes we do things for applause, and sometimes we get applauded when we know we really shouldn't. Sometimes we do things because we really feel God wants us to, and we want to please Him in all that we do. Here's the deal. We can't decipher our motives on our own. We need help. Our motivations are only known by God, and we need to ask Him to purify ours. I'm not talking escalators, obviously, anymore. 
I'm talking our all day, every day. Why does it matter? What's the big deal? Why we do what we do is a window to who we are and why we are here. We are created by God to live for God, not for ourselves. God's honor is at stake. This is seen in multiple places in the Bible. One of those places is in the first letter that Peter wrote. Peter, one of Jesus' 12 apostles, was writing to a group of believers. They believed in Jesus Christ. He was who he said he was. And they were currently scattered about in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. They had scattered because they were being persecuted. And so they went to all these other regions. They were fearing for their lives, and they were often met with opposition. In the first letter that Peter wrote to them, he was encouraging these followers of Christ to live their lives with one another in a way that is motivated by bringing glory to God. It was his assumption, Peter's, as inspired by the Holy Spirit, that if they would do so, if they would live lives with the intention to glorify God, even if they were slandered and called evildoers, that unbelievers and even their persecutors could see how they lived and would eventually glorify God because of it. Peter gave them all kinds of instructions, more than I'm going to share with you right now, but in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, we read this, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. Oh, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. In the culture of the New Testament, hospitality was essential. Remember, too, these people were scattered about, so it wouldn't be unusual for others to come and visit not all of whom had believed yet that Jesus was who he said he was. So Peter's saying, be hospital without complaining. He reminded them that they, just like we who've received Christ, who are believers in Jesus, they had each received a spiritual gift from God. This was a fact. We can read about what those spiritual gifts are in various places in the New Testament. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and here in 1 Peter 4. These gifts, the gifts these people had been given were things like serving and speaking and teaching, encouraging, administrating, pastoring, and helping, to name just a few. These gifts, Peter says, are intended to be used to highlight how great God is. If we're using them and complaining about it, or using them for our own glory, we're operating with the wrong operating system. Our motives are suspect. People, he's saying, if you're going to serve one another with these gifts, serve well. Be a good steward of what God has given you. If you're serving one another, do it with the strength God will provide for you. You don't have to serve on your own. What a great reminder. What a great opportunity to check in with ourselves too. Are you complaining? Are you stretched thin? Is this the first thing you say when you talk to others? Do you start listing a a litany of all you have to do and how busy you are as though what you're doing, God is not enabling you to do? As though what God has called you to do, he's not going to give you the strength. Maybe you're doing so many things because you're finding your identity in this. 
Maybe you're thinking, man, the reason I'm doing all these things is it makes me feel important. It makes me feel needed. It makes me feel wanted. That's not what your gifts are for. They're to be used to meet the needs of others and to bring others' focus to God. Are you volunteering for something or in charge of something or responsible for something and you find yourself complaining about it or carrying stress about it or hoping somebody notices how good you are at it or are you finding your identity in this? Quit it. It'd be better for you to not do it at all than to do something with poor motives. Otherwise, you run the risk of bringing attention to yourself in a positive or negative way and robbing God of the glory that he deserves. Practically speaking, I suggest you make a list of all the things that you do, all the things you're responsible for. Then divide the list in two. On the one half, write the things you must do. If you don't, you know you are neglecting God's call in your life. These things might be like feeding your family, paying your bills, caring for your neighbor, or teaching your Sunday school class. On the other half of the list, write the things you're involved in that you said yes to merely because you thought if you didn't do it, nobody else would, or you felt guilted into it, or you found you've been doing it so long you're afraid, or others have mentioned that your identity is getting attached to what you do rather than who and whose you are. Once you have these lists finalized, I suggest you go through the second list and start quitting stuff. There will be someone else who will step up, And then you'll have more energy to do the things that God has called and gifted you to do. You'll be able to do these things with the desire to bring God glory, and you will care not at all if you are noticed or applauded. In fact, the applause might even seem embarrassing as you recognize you don't really deserve it. You're just doing what you're called to do with it, and you're gifted by God. And you will, as Peter suggests, want to be sure that God will be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. You might wonder if I've stopped running up the down escalators. I haven't. I did it just a couple weeks ago. It was super tall, too. And I was wearing my Birkenstocks that are just a tad bit too big for me. My heart was racing faster than I, than I was, for sure. And I was trying to run while curling my toes in my sandals so they wouldn't fall off. I didn't run into my teacher, and I didn't save a baby. But I'm 55, and I just wondered, I wonder if I can still do this. And I could. Good story, huh? Blessings, friends.